so for for quite a while, you know, kind of in and out, we've we've been um, speaking to holiness, and all of those talks have been kind of from a I don't know how you'd say it from a macro perspective or you know from a high level. We we haven't really drilled down into specifics of things that are holy or things that are unholy, and um, I've been getting some push from my wife and Kim that it's time. And I believe that the Lord is speaking and it's time to, to uh, tap on this particular subject. It's a big deal subject. So last week, um, Kim spoke with Ben sitting right in the front, you know, and she gave us a wonderful um, testimonial thing, and it was great. Matter of fact, you know, I hate to do this to your kids in front of the whole church. I'm looking at you, Lisa. And I'm looking at you, Steve. Um, I'm talking about sexual immorality here. Your kids are here. Are you okay without seeing my notes? I mean, I'm not going to get graphic. She's 18. Oh, well, well, that makes her an adult. Yeah, you can date any way you want. (laughs) Yeah, that's not what I told Annika. Yeah, I got that one. Okay, so... All right. Did you answer me? I think you answered me last week. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So now, you know, I, I don't know that the next, you know, year we're going to talk about idolatry and covetousness, you know, bang, 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 one after the next. But but I suspect that we probably will from time to time. We'll, we'll tap down on one of these to just keep us fresh in this whole conversation about holiness. So the, the question I'll ask you to start is the same question I asked her when we started is, you know, is it, is it okay for me to date now? I'm like, well, who's the guy? And she said, well, there, you know, there isn't really a guy, but, and I said, well, why would you want to date? And then based upon why you would want to date, there's Steve, because I'm, I'm talking your words, aren't I, buddy? Yeah. Um, the, the, the next thing is, you know, if you're going to start to have relationships with somebody, where are you going to make, you know, how are you going to make your decisions about how that relationship looks? Basically, where do you get your standards from? Where do you get your morals from? When, when we became Christians, we made a, a covenant agreement with God that we would then define our lives the way he defines things. So there's two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you know, it's defined different ways. And then there's the kingdom that's not that one that you could call the world, uh, you know, the kingdom of Satan, uh, the prince of the power of the air. There's only two. Any, anything that would call itself anything that doesn't agree with God's standards, his purposes, and his will is not the kingdom of God. So when, when we got saved, what we said was, I am going to move from whatever other kingdom, and I'm going to move into this kingdom, and I will make myself subject to the king, not just from the perspective of obedience, right? God says you can do this, you can do it. God says you can't do that, you can't do it. You know, God says God says no, God says yes. That's, that's the lowest level of citizenship in God's kingdom. The higher level of citizenship in God's kingdom is that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're not living a kingdom lifestyle out of just dogged obedience. Oh, I can't do that because God said I can't. It's, it's that as you permeate yourself, as you pickle yourself in the word of God, 
as you pray and develop an intimate relationship with God through Holy Spirit, your mind will change. And those things that you thought were okay because the world embraced them become not okay, not just because that's the way God thinks, but it's because the way you think. So the higher level that we're really seeking is to be like God, not just in our behavior, but in our thinking as well, okay? All right, so that takes us to the place of, you know, we've actually already decided, whether we recognize that that's what we did, we've already decided that our life, our morality, is going to be dictated to us or defined by God. And the way God does that is in the Bible. And so that's how we look at things. And um, so today, when you say... Does the Bible describe sexual morality? It really doesn't too much. It, des- it defines what sexual morality isn't, sexual immorality, right? The things that you would say are moral would be more kind of under the guise of righteousness in that regard. So today we'll talk f- from only three places, well, maybe a little bit more, three places in Scripture about kind of the what of sexual immorality. And just to give you a heads up, this week, um, talk about the what of sexual immorality. Next week, God willing, the why of sexual immorality. Like, why would we stumble in that particular area in our um, walk with God? And then the third week will be more to address the how of getting loose from it. So kind of define it today. And, and it's the, the definition is pretty powerful in, in, the, in the sense that God kind of defines what it looks like and how we're supposed to see it. And then next week, the, um, the why that we might be in that kind of a situation. And then finally, how do we get loose from it? Okay? All right. So I, um, I stumbled across a video that I'm going to play for you. It's a, kind of a long one. It's maybe like four or five minutes long. But they do a great job of summarizing at a high level um, what that is. So could we... And you may may need to turn the volume up a little bit. I don't know. What is sexual immorality? We're going to answer that question. In the New Testament, the word most often translated into sexual morality is pornea. This word also translates as whoredom, fornication, and idolatry. It means a surrendering of sexual purity and is primarily describing a premarital sexual relationship. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship. The connection between sexual immorality and idolatry is best understood in the context of flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. The bodies of believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we use our physical bodies for immoral purposes, we are imitating pagan worship by profaning God's holy temple with acts he calls detestable. Biblical prohibitions against sexual immorality are often coupled with warnings against impurity. This word in the Greek is akatharsia, which means defiled, foul, or ceremonially unfit. It connotes actions that render a person unfit to enter God's presence. 
Those who persist in unrepentant immorality and impurity cannot come into the presence of God. It is impossible to maintain a healthy intimacy with God when our bodies and our souls are given over to impurities of any kind. Sexuality is God's design. He alone can define the parameters for its use. The Bible is clear that sex was created to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who are in a covenant marriage until one of them dies. Any expression of it outside those parameters constitutes an abuse of God's gift. The Bible calls this sin. Adultery, premarital sex, pornography, and homosexual relations are all outside of God's design, which makes them sin. Here are some common objections to God's commands against sexual immorality. Number one, it's not wrong if we love each other. The Bible makes no distinction between loving and unloving sexual relations. The only biblical distinction is between married and unmarried people. Sex within marriage is blessed. Sex outside of marriage is fornication or sexual immorality. Number two, times have changed and what was wrong in biblical times is no longer considered sin. We have no problem understanding that greed, lust, stealing, these things are still sin. God's character does not change with the culture's opinion. Number three, we are married in God's eyes. This argument implies that God is cross-eyed. The fallacy of this idea is that the God who created marriage in the first place would retract his own condemnation of what he's called sin. God declared marriage to be one man and one woman, united for life. And his eyes see immorality for what it is, regardless of how cleverly we have redefined it. Number four. I can still have a good relationship with God because he understands. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We fool ourselves when we think that we can stubbornly choose sin and God doesn't care. The scripture challenges that idea. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in that person. Hebrews 13.4 makes God's expectation for his children crystal clear. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sexual immorality is wrong. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us from every type of impurity when we repent and receive his forgiveness. But that cleansing means our old nature, including sexual immorality, is put to death. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. That answers the question, what is sexual immorality? Research this question further on our website, godquestions.org. Be sure and click subscribe and check out these other questions. that Proverbs verse about that uh, a person who's, who won't listen to God's law, you know, that he, their prayers are just nasty to God in that regard. The same as says, Peter says that if a man doesn't honor his wife, his prayers are not going to be heard by God. They'll be hindered in his hearing. So there's a, there's a big deal in you're not saved through your works, but when you made your confession of faith, it was really to a whole different worldview than whatever you came out of.
All right, I just need you to take his watch, if you would, please. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. He's like, maybe you could talk until 5 and the store will close. I, I probably could. I don't think I will, but I, I could. Okay, so people ask the question, well, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? And, and the question of, you know, but what about this or, or what about that is, is more indicative of the heart that's looking to get as close to the line as it can versus as far away from the cliff as it possibly can. But I thought to myself, if I was to make a list of things, and I, I didn't spend an hour on this, so I'd just give you some words. Sexual immorality includes fornication, word that nobody uses in culture, but fornication would be sexual relations between unmarried people. And adultery, which would be sexual relations by uh, a person who's married with somebody that's not their spouse. So if that other person uh, wasn't married, then the married person that was doing that would be committing adultery, and the unmarried person that was doing it with them would be committing fornication. Or if the two people were just unmarried, then that would be fornication. So um, the third one is homosex or lesbianism. So when a man would have sexual relations with another man, that is sexually immoral. If a woman would have sexual relations with another woman, that is sexually immoral. Now, culture doesn't have that problem, but remember, we don't live in that kingdom. We live in the kingdom that's defined by God's morality, not by this progression of less and less morality that's in the world. To, to gaze with lust is sexual immorality. Jesus, uh, I don't know if it's chapter 5 or chapter 6, I think it's 5 in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus says that to look upon a person with lust is to fornicate or to commit adultery in the heart. Lusting with your mind. To, 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 to allow in your mind the thoughts of adulterous or homosexual or lesbian or fornicating. To, to, to uh, not put those kind of thoughts down is sexually immoral. Viewing pornography is sexually immoral. You can't... Pornography is not a, a documentary. I can remember at one time... Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, if it was before I was saved, I didn't care. Annika, close your ears. But I looked at pornography before I was saved, and um, I don't know that I would consider myself delivered from it. But but I haven't struggled with wanting to do it. I've had it come in my face a couple times, just like popped up on a screen, and it felt like literally like Satan reached his hand through the screen and grabbed me by my very heart and tried to pull me in. So. There's a place that, that in my flesh that would still probably embrace it, but I don't go near it, and sometimes it tries to find me, and I run from it. I mean, as a matter of fact, every time that's happened, which has only been a few, the first thing I do is I go get trees, and I walk her up, and I say, I scrolled it up, you scroll it down, I want you to see what I saw, and then I've confessed it. I didn't even do it, but it, you know, it, it happened, and I've confessed it, and I've taken and disarmed the devil. In that regard, and I would recommend anybody else that's in a you know that's married that you do the same thing. Nothing hidden. Now, I put a little asterisk next to this one. There's a lot of differing opinion on this whether it's immoral before God dies or not. 
And it's the last one on my list, is masturbation. Now, there isn't really any scripture that I'm aware of biblically that speaks to masturbation. People that would say it's sinful can say it's sinful because it's immoral, but they can't define it that way like you can these other things. My take is, for example, could, could a single man, it's getting a little raw, sorry, could a single man, could a married man masturbate and not sin? You could argue maybe if all the thoughts were only imagining a relational, you know, an experience with his wife. But that's not how God intended for that situation to happen in a man's mind with, you know, somebody else than his wife. So I think it's wrong. Could a single man, I don't know how a single man could stimulate himself without something going on in his mind. He doesn't have a wife. Therefore, it has to be fornication. It it, it would be like um, lusting in your heart with your eyes, only different. So can I tell you absolutely, 100% positively, that, that masturbation is sexual immorality? I'm not sure I can quite get there. But I can tell you a million different ways that it's not God's plan for you. That, that you know, if you have uh, needs that, you know, you can't meet because you're a single person, then you thank God for his grace. And, and you rely on his grace yeah, you're not given a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and self-control or self-discipline or a sound mind. So if, if, you, if you, you know, want to debate that one, we could debate it. But I think the safe thing to do is to put it in that column that it's sexually immoral. So then just generally, any, any sexual expression outside of that ordained between a husband, which I must define as a man, and a wife, which I must define as a woman, anything outside of that which is ordained by God is sexually immoral. That, that's, a, that's a great way you can think of it. Okay, now let's take and look at some scriptures. Um, first, kind of a summary scripture. I got like 800 scriptures, but I'm not going to use them. There, there's so much. It's like if you read the New Testament and, and you come up with a different answer, you are really trying to come up with a different answer. But just kind of a summary statement. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So that's a pretty easy one. What's God's will? It's his will that you possess your vessel in such a way that's honoring to God that is not sexually immoral in any way. I'm trying so hard to not bring the conversation of of salvation into this, you know, the conversation with the church, but there's just a couple of places I'm going to touch it. So this is the will of God, that you be sanctified. Sanctified means set apart, right? We were in the world... We had made no commitment to God that Jesus would be the Lord of our lives. We hadn't asked him to save us, nothing. We could do what we want because we haven't been set apart. But the minute that we made that confession of faith, the minute that Dave made that confession of faith, then he was set apart over here for God. Not just to God, not just in God, but for God. 
So God's will is our sanctification, that we wouldn't be dipping our toes back into the cesspool of the world in any way, but certainly not in this way, right? And Hebrews chapter 12, I don't think I gave you this scripture. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So if if somehow we have this this Christianity that says that we can do whatever we want, that we've been sanctified in such a sense that our life can be whatever without a commitment to sanctification. And the commitment would be born true by the actual sanctification of our lives. We don't get to see God. He, whoever that was in the video referenced um, the, kind of the same thing. And one of the scriptures he referenced was Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So he said, if, that, if there's unrepentant, this kind of stuff in your life, you can't have any kind of a relationship intimately with God because it's those that are pure in heart that get to see God. Okay, let's get a little bit more specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. The body, the vessel, the body is the Lord's. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Two Sundays from now, I'm going to talk about this. The commentators say that probably the first part was the Corinthians quote, like, they were saying, all things are lawful for me because they're not under the law anymore. So, so they can break the law, and the breaking of the law, even in the area of sexual immorality, isn't uh, deny them their eternal relationship with God. They may be denying their God, but because they're not under the law. Anyway, I'm going to go into great detail on, the, on one of the next two Sundays on that piece. But Paul's response to that comment is, but not all things are profitable. So while you may not be under the law per se, there are things that you can do because there's no law that aren't right to do, and they're not profitable. Anything that's not righteous is not profitable. So that's the point he's trying to make. All things are lawful, lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or, you, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Isn't that interesting? That's the same phraseology that I think it's Jesus uses in the Gospels when he talks about getting married. That they, that they become one flesh, not when they say, I do, but when they consummate the marriage, they become one flesh. And that's no different than what happens to you when you connect yourself to a prostitute or just somebody else in a in an unholy way. You become one flesh with that person. And if you did it a lot with that person and that person and that person. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, period. Sentence, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. 
But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So let's go back and tap on some points here. The body, not for immorality, but for the Lord. Why? Because it's his. You are not your own. Every day, we would do well if we would get out of bed and remind ourselves, I don't have a life. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. What was the price that purchased us? It was the very shed blood of Jesus. It was the suffering of Jesus. It was everything that he had to do in order to be an acceptable sacrifice and then to bear the weight of the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. And we asked for that. We made a trade. What did we trade? We traded his righteousness for our life. I'm not my own anymore. We should remind ourselves of that. Our bodies are members of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, one spirit with God. Should God's physical members, us, be joined to a prostitute? Think about that for just a second, right? I should think of my examples before I get up here. <laughs> that which is so unholy to the Lord, we, if we participate in it, we are forcing him to do that. It's like, it's like if, um, it's almost like a rape. Like if a, if a man takes a woman and, and he's stronger than her and he takes her hand and makes her do something with it. Or he forces her to be in a situation that she doesn't want to be in. It's the same thing that when we take the members ourselves, the members of the Lord, and we do things that are sexually immoral, we're forcing the body of Jesus into an environment that's unholy, that's detestable, uh, an abomination to God. Not only that, we are his very temple. He has honored us. When, when he resurrected us in Jesus Christ to new life, he's honored us to be the place where he dwells in his spirit. So Holy Spirit is stuck inside Christians that are doing things that are so, so sickening to the Lord. I mean, that should mean something to us. If we think about that we were bought with a price and we're willing to ponder what that price was, how could we be so casual as to say, all right, Lord, I just need you to close your eyes for, you know, five minutes or an hour or whatever. When he can't close his eyes, everything is visible to him. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin is outside the body. Now, we're, we're um, often we'll say things like, well, all sin is equal. That's true, and it's not true. All sin is equal in that any sin separates us eternally from God without Jesus, right? So you could tell a lie, or you could kill 5 million Jews, you know, in the Holocaust. And either of those, if you, if you were righteous, would then separate you. That sin would separate you from being eternally related to God. But not all sin is equal in the sense that they carry the same weight. And sexual sin is a really high order of sin because of what we just talked about. 
because of the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so when a person commits that kind of sin, it's, it's of a higher order than if it was some other garden variety kind of sin, which, you know, no sin should be considered garden variety. Those are bad words, but you know what I mean. Ultimately, through our sanctification, we are to glorify God in our bodies. Okay? All right, now... The next course of scripture is all of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to break it up into some chunks, but this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. And and you should like sit down, grab your chair and hold on because it's going to give us a sense for not not like God doesn't love somebody that's struggling in that area at all, but the weightiness of it, okay? All right. Um starting in verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Everybody get that? Right? Like he's having an affair with his stepmom. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So in the Corinthian church, you know, they were kind of out there. And they were not dealing with this kind of stuff in the manner that Paul had instructed them when he established them as a church, right? That, be, that way of thinking, he's calling arrogant. God is calling arrogant. Why? Because God told them how they should behave, and when there's certain kind of behavior, you cannot tolerate it at all. But they were tolerating it. So they were being arrogant and proud in the sense that they put themselves above the instruction that they got from God through the Apostle Paul. Rather, they should have been mourning. They should have been literally broken because a brother was involved in this kind of behavior and it should break them. Okay? It should break us. Not, not to the point of like condemnation, judgment, but to the point of brokenness. Oh, no. There's a, I I thought I was going to do this. I know of a minister who has fallen, left his wife and children, has a girlfriend, and told his wife, I'm done with you. I, I think he probably hasn't been in church for a while. Now I don't even remember why I told you this. Sorry. But totally unrepentant. I called. I said, hey, has anybody confronted this guy? Because it was killing me. What was happening to him? Yeah, I mean, I was crying for this guy. I'm like, if, if, if you guys aren't reaching out, I'm going to. And, and they're like, no, no, we are. You know, we have. But he's like, you know, he wants what he wants. And he's not repentant. Can you imagine? I mean... That's why you can't get close to this stuff. You cannot touch it. Because once you start to even let it start to get a little place in your mind, you can just go a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the next thing you know, you're telling your wife, I'm done with you. And then somebody says to you, but you know it's wrong. And and you say, I know. But your heart, you've allowed your heart to become so hard and so calloused you can start to try to convince yourself that somehow it's okay. 
Man, I'm telling you, think, talk about things that you just should not touch with. The, the perverted sex may be, it may be identity or perverted sex. I don't know which one goes first, but probably one and two or one and two in the way that Satan destroys people. So when you feel like bad about yourself, don't touch that with a 10-foot pole because that's one of the top two tools I think Satan uses. But when you start to have little thoughts about, well, my wife this or she doesn't that, but, but this one, you need to know you are headed down a path that's going to be so hard to get back from. Don't touch it. Don't, in, don't in entertain those thoughts no matter what. Get on your knees, call somebody, cry out to the Lord, Reject those thoughts because you are, you are in the throes of spiritual warfare the minute that that thought finds its way into your head and you need, to, you need to cast it down and deny it with your mouth immediately. Put that down. That wasn't in my notes. For I on my part, though absent in body, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, but present in spirit have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now that to me is a you can lose your salvation scripture right there, right? If, if we don't intercede and the interceding is literally to turn this guy over to be I don't know what, beat up by Satan until he'll repent, ultimately, that he won't fall off the cliff. Think to note. A person might be in some kind of a sinful behavior situation or relationship, and you confront it, and they say, you can't judge me. The Bible says you can't judge me. Paul judged this guy. And, and he rebuked the Corinthian church for not doing the same thing. He called them arrogant for not doing that. He delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of that man's flesh. Why? That his spirit might be saved. Paul did it because the church didn't. They were arrogant. Wow, I got there without my notes. Why was it necessary that Paul do this? Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We need to understand that no Christian is an island unto himself. Every Christian is, is a member of Christ's body. And we cannot be casual about sin. Any sin, especially this kind of sin. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So I, you know, I honestly don't know anybody that's practicing sexual immorality in our church. I don't know. It doesn't mean they're not. I'm just telling you, I'm not speaking to any individual right now. But when you do those kinds of things, you corrupt me. And, and, and we are all corrupted. And remember, when we first started talking about holiness, 
And we looked at where's the power, and God said, it's your affections that restrain you. God said, it's not me, because I want the power to flow through you. It's your affections that restrain you. And then he showed me how uh, charis, grace, becomes charismata, gifts, in humility, but never in pride. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, grace is a pretty broad topic, but one of the ways that grace is manifested is in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yet we are one body. We're not individuals. So there's some sense of our individual ministries, but there's, a, there's a, also a sense of us collectively as members of Christ's body, if we will be proud before the Lord and say, well, you're just going to have to look your, the other way for this, then, then what we're doing is we're disabling the body of Christ, not just our own ministry. I have had only one situation that I've had to confront sin to the point where I was going to tell somebody, you can't come anymore. And, and, and I believe, Jesus says, you know the scripture that everybody quotes, that uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. You know the context of that scripture? Church discipline, right? So you have a problem with a person who has is committing unrepentant sin in the body and you become aware of it. And Jesus says, hey, listen, we're two or three of you together and you agree on this, I'm with you. And then it says, whatsoever you should bind on earth has been bound in heaven. So my point is that, that I think the church has the authority of heaven to bind up somebody, bind them out of the church. So when you put somebody out of the church because of unrepentant sin... They're not supposed to go to another church. I was talking to some uh, pastor guy the other day. He's like, I don't know what to do about this. Do I call all the churches? And I was literally struggling with the same thing. How far of a radius do I call and say, hey, if this so-and-so shows up, don't let them in. They're under discipline in the church. Anyway, you know, they told me to pound sand before I had to say, if you don't repent, you can't come back. And it, it sorted itself out. But that's what he's saying here. He we have to understand the magnitude of what sin does. It does it to the individual. It does it to the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now listen, if you're struggling with something, then you're probably repentant. You just may not have gained victory. You don't understand that you already actually do have victory, but, but you may not have personally gained victory over that thing, whatever that thing is. I don't think that the scripture is telling us that we put somebody out who's struggling they're confessing. They've put it out there. And, and then we're, we're ministering to one another, ministering to one another, and loving one another. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the guy who has his mother's wife, or his father's wife, and he says, That's, you're just going to have to put up with it. They're like, no, no, we can't put up with it because you are, are corrupting the whole church by your behavior. If you're struggling with something, man, don't struggle by yourself. Seriously, don't struggle by yourself. I promise you, I don't think there's one person in this church that if you came to them with whatever you're struggling with would not say, oh, man, let me help you because I know the things that I've struggled with or am struggling with and would not meet you with a heart of compassion and mercy and love. But if the devil can get you to think that you're going to be judged... The Bible tells us we don't judge in that way. We only judge the unrepentant person. 
Yeah, don't let fear keep you bound. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked, the wicked man. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I mean, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Seriously, what is God saying? He's like, listen, if you have an unrepentant person, you don't even associate with them. You don't have a meal with them. You don't invite them to your house. You don't touch them. In the New Testament, I'm not reading you from Leviticus. I'm reading you from 1 Corinthians. Do not associate with immoral, immoral people specifically any so-called brother. And this is interesting, too, because, again, the, the wrestle that I've been having this back and forth with, uh, not, not an argument, just trying to understand Jessica Palmer and I. And First um, John says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices righteousness is of God, right? So if somebody's struggling with pornography, does that mean because they're practicing that they're actually not of God but of the devil? Ultimately, I say yes, but where is the line between struggling with something and actually practicing it as just a part of your life? I don't know where that line is. So, so then you've got to figure out, how, how do you preach this stuff? I mean, it's, she, says, she said to me, I under, I, now I understand your conundrum, because she felt like I was being too strong. Jeff is like this. It's like, just stop it. You don't have to do that anymore. You're a Christian. That, that's a couple sermons from now. It's like, that's true. Just cut it out. I should do my, my stop it video for you guys, right? That, eh, I won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You have, there is no power over a Christian that, that, that makes them do sin. But it's a heart issue. And maybe there are heart issues that need to be dealt with for the person to be able to walk in the freedom that they actually already have. So we have to be careful that we don't forget love, kindness, mercy, long-suffering, patience, all those kind of things as we deal with each other's struggles. But ultimately, we can't, we can't just say, well, you know, God is so loving, he's just going to be okay with that. And then you just throw in the towel and you keep doing immoral things. That can't be the answer. People would say, well, that's not loving. That's not Jesus. If you say, sorry, man, I unless we're going to talk about me helping you repent, I can't have any relationship with you. Well, then, you know, how do you have the love of Jesus? It's like, hey, this must be the love of Jesus because it's exactly what the Scripture says, that, that I'm to love you in such a way that denies you from the fellowship of the Lord such that you might repent and come back into fellowship with the church, because now you're a plus and not a minus. I don't know, that might not have been a good thing to say, but 
Yeah, yeah, turn it around. So it is loving because God is love. And there's nothing he would have us do that doesn't come from the person whose very nature is love. So we need to obey him, right? The, the person who would say, God, I'm sorry, I just don't, I, I can't stop, and you're just going to have to turn your head and be okay with this, is no different than the person that would say, God, Paul didn't understand love, therefore I'm going to embrace this person. I'm just going to snuggle them until they repent. It's the same. You have become arrogant before God. Maybe that's what the church is doing. Maybe the guy who had his father's wife was a tither. Hate to put the tither out, right? Maybe he was a rich tither. God's our provision, not the rich tither. All right. So judging outsiders. We don't judge outsiders. This conversation, it was kind of a side spin with, with Annika, but she's like, well, Dad, what about homosexuals? I said, what about them? What if homosexual couple comes to church on the street? How are we supposed to treat them? Love them. Love them. Accept them. Don't judge them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For the son did not come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. For the world is already judged. For they did not believe in the name. I, you know, that's about as good as I can remember. The point, the point is that they're already judged, that homosexual couple. We don't need to judge them. When they come in, we love them. We show them the love of Christ. They hear about Jesus. They hear about his sacrifice. They hear about the goodness that we learn from the scriptures. And they, and they choose, maybe, to give their life to Jesus. Different ballgame now. Now they're a so-called brother. And if they, if they somehow came into this reconciled relationship with God, thinking that this particular thing was going to be okay, we're obligated to judge that situation and, and, and in love come to them because they're not loving God in that relationship. But before they've made that confession to the Lordship of Christ, what are you going to do? Judge them based on what? We judge because we have all had the same agreement with God, and then he's using each of us to help each other to stay in that agreement with God. Judge those within the church. That's our obligation. I talked about all that. Okay, so judging is a big deal, right? I mean, it's misunderstood, and um, it's a... It's a it's a twisted scripture. It's not twisted scripture, but it's, the devil twists it in how we apply it. So just I'm going to finish with a little of that so we can understand when, when it says, why didn't you judge that guy? I've had to do it because you didn't. You're arrogant because you chose your own way instead of the way that I told you according to what was revealed to me by Jesus. Of course, I'm the Apostle Paul speaking here. So let's talk about judging within the church. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me give you the negative example first. Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, you know, chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 is all this, you know, uh, they didn't honor God as God. They didn't worship him. They worshiped the created thing instead of the creator. God gave them over to their evil passions and lusts, and their hearts were hardened, and, you know, that's all what comes before this. 
Then he says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practices such things. Well, wait a minute. He is talking about homosexuals. I'm not a homosexual, therefore I can. No, you can't. Because you have some sin issue you're dealing with, right? Don't go try to dig that speck out of your brother's eye while you've got a giant plank in your own eye. Clean that thing out of your eye, then you can go help your brother. See, that's the judging that, the, that Matthew 7 is talking about. Do not judge lest you be judged the way you judge, right? So, so judging in that condemning sort of way is not what Paul is talking about here. The biblical model, and I won't give you all the scriptures, but the biblical model is this. First, you, 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 you become aware of, of some sin in a brother or sister's life. First, private confrontation. If the person receives you and repents, no need for anybody to know about it. You've achieved your objective, and that is to bring somebody back into righteousness with God. But if they choose not to repent, then you return with two or three witnesses, and you confront them again. You pray with them. You love them. You're concerned for them. You're not judging them, but you're judging their behavior because you're called to. If they repent, done. You've won your brother. If they don't, step three is you bring them before the church. And if they don't repent, then you do what Paul said. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You move them out. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, speaks kind of to the motive and the process. There's more, but this is give you like a good high-level perspective. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So, so this is the motivation and the position of the heart when we judge in this kind of a sense, in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of humility, with the goal of restoration. Repentance unto respiration, restoration, okay? It's not the judgment that's rebuked in Romans chapter 2. It's not the judgment that Jesus is talking about in Romans chapter 7. You become aware, and instead of being arrogant, you mourn. And in your mourning, you go in gentleness and humility to that brother or sister, and you try to call them out of their sin such that they could be restored, repent. So then just we'll stop where we started. How are our morals defined? We have to be careful that any time we start to allow ourselves to define what's right or wrong, contrary to what the scriptures teach us is right or wrong, we're about to step off onto a really, really, really slippery slope. And, and when somebody starts to rationalize that to somebody else, they're already halfway down that thing, skidding without no brakes, Right? I mean, maybe we can be the brakes. The world does not get to define the morality of the church. And like the video guy said, well, you know, what was unacceptable in biblical times 
are, is acceptable now because the world has changed. Well, we, the world isn't our measure. The measure is God's standard of holiness, right? So maybe the answer to the question, how are, how are our morals defined, might truly define whether or not we're a brother or a so-called brother. Because that's the way Paul defined that person who was practicing immorality, is, is a so-called brother. I mean, I'm not sure he was saying that that person's not saved. But, it, it, you know, and according to First John, you, you could see where he's coming from. But he wasn't quite ready to say, hey, no problem, that, that person is locked right in with the Lord. He called them a so-called brother. And the last thing that I want to just speak to is the devil's two really powerful tools to, to try to define your identity outside of Christ and sexual junk, those two things. If he can get you into the second one, then the next tool he uses to keep you there is shame because you know it's wrong and you're doing it anyway. And you've been a Christian for 20 years and what the heck is wrong with me and why am I doing this? And the answer is, it's important though. That's the why. I think it's a heart issue. As a matter of fact, him screwing with your identity could be how he gets you to mess around with sexual immorality stuff. And then he's going to just keep using, you know, you, you, you tell somebody and they're going to judge you, which then affects your identity, which drives you deeper and deeper into this hole. So I'm telling you, shame can't be part of our program. It just can't. It's, it is a, um, a boat anchor that, that will keep you from moving forward with the Lord. And if you've got to overcome anything to get free, overcome shame. The issue isn't what you're doing. The issue is who you are and how you're going to get free. Say amen to that. Seriously. And, it, and it, it can be sexual immorality. It can be doing dirty business deals. You can pick whatever it is that's outside of God's will, sanctification of your lives. But if he lets you start to feel shame, then you know he's got his hand on your throat. And, and you need to just say, no, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. And every one of us got a story, right? I mean, I got a story that... I could be ashamed of that could bind me up that I'm not going to let bind me up because I need to be free just like all of us need to be free. Out of the dark. Yeah, do I get to come out of the darkness? Man, you already out of the darkness. <laughs> Don't let the devil think that you're not. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't tap dance, that you're a loving, you're a merciful, you're a kind, you're a patient, you're a gracious but you're a just and true God as well. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we don't have to wonder. Thank you that it's a, it's a light unto our path, that the steps of the righteous are ordered by God himself. Thank you for ordering our steps. Father, I pray that no spirit of shame or fear will bind up any person that needs to get free from any kind of a sin, especially this one, Father. I pray that every heart in this place will mourn and not feel arrogant if we come to be aware of any other brother's stumbling. That we will be gentle and humble, but truthful and obedient to your word. Father God, 
We also thank you for the offering. We thank you that you meet our needs, especially this time of year, Lord. We, we thank you because there can be people that, you know, didn't get, uh, couldn't have a nice Thanksgiving dinner that we could help, that, that may not be able to celebrate Jesus by blessing somebody else with a gift that we can help. So first, Lord, we thank you for meeting all of our needs, including our financial needs. We ask your blessing. We ask your multiplying power. And we ask your wisdom to spend. But also, Lord, we ask you to to help us to find, or for them to find us, Lord, those people that could use that kind of a blessing in this season. We do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.